Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we're joined by Adam Bannister, a biologist, a safari guide, and a environmental storyteller, and also a judge of the Greatest Masai Mara Photo Competition. So Adam, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's awesome to have you on. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to, good to meet you. Good morning. Good evening. <laughs> good, af- good, good afternoon you here in uh, Brisbane. <laughs> Uh, no, it was, it was awesome to to have you on. Um, it seems like you've got a bit of experience in a range of different conservational areas. So there's quite a bit I want to talk about. Um, but before we do that, can you please give the podcast a brief intro on who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm my name's Adam. I'm currently based in Kenya. I'm South African, but I've been living in Kenya for the last year and a half, where I work in the Masara. So kind of the southwestern uh, corner of, of Kenya, bordering on the Serengeti. Mm-hmm. I'm literally based in the, in the wilderness. Um, I've traveled quite extensively and been working quite extensively on different conservation fields. At the moment, my role is, is primarily based on visual storytelling, aimed at, at trying to promote the Masai Mara, trying to promote the camp that I work at, and trying to promote um, good conservation photography kind of ethics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned photography and storytelling. Is this something that you always wanted to do? Or was this kind of, it happened organically into this? So, yeah. So my, I mean, my story is quite convoluted and quite lengthy, but it, but, but it is quite interesting. I, um, I, studied, I studied conservation um, at Stellenbosch University down in Cape Town. And after that, when I was being groomed into being a pure researcher, a pure biologist, I started to fall a little bit out of love with science because I felt that the communication of science wasn't necessarily happening in the right way. You know, we we get trained to write these scientific journals. And the the difficult part for me is that you knew that people who were reading those journals, firstly, that the, the reach was quite limited because you were having to use such vocabulary that was so complicated that people wouldn't know what you're talking about. But secondly, the people who are reading it often already knew it. And so we weren't actually spreading true awareness. Obviously, we need the foundation of science. I have no doubt about that. But we need to look beyond that. We need to look at the communication of science to make it more, more kind of global reaching. So from the pure scientific background, I then moved up into the Kruger National Park area, so the kind of northeastern part of South Africa, where I decided that I would try my hand at guiding. I worked at a, at a, at a nice lodge there called Vandalozi. The Sabi Sands, so boarding on the Kruger Park. And I did my guiding. I started to focus more and more on lions, lion behavior, kind of um, just lion dynamics, to the extent where I eventually even wrote a, wrote a book on lion, on lion behavior. Um, it was during that time that I started to play around with the concept of photographing, trying to document. It was more documentarian style rather than fine art style. And that's the kind of photographer that I believe I've shaped to become. Rather than, rather than taking a photograph because it's beautiful, I take a photograph because it's got a story. It doesn't always need to be the most pretty picture. Mm-hmm. 
Um, from, from there, the journey then continued after four or so years in the, in the Kruger Park. I then moved across to Brazil where I worked with Jaguars, try and convert a, a cattle ranch into a Jaguar conservancy. From there, across to Asia. And, where was that Jaguar? in Southern Pantanal. Okay, yep, yep. Southern Pantanal. Um, so I was based there for a while in an incredible project. Literally, the landowner was deciding that he, you know, they didn't want to shoot the Jaguars, but the Jaguars were causing a lot of conflict with the cattle. And so he was looking at a way to try and offset the loss. And the best way to do that is through tourism, through ecotourism. So having people come pay to take photographs of, of a big cat and using the Jaguar as a, as a charismatic kind of keystone species in what people want to photograph. Um, from there, again, just very briefly moved across to India. India, I spent, must have been close on three years working at trying to build up a leopard conservancy in an area known as Jawai. And there essentially got involved in the creation of, it, of another camp. So it's always been conservation, storytelling and ecotourism, that kind of blend. Um, three years there, then moved across to Rwanda where I was working with, with an organization called Africa Parks, trying to regenerate and restore the lion population that was wiped out during the genocide um, 25 or so odd years ago. Um, from there, took a little break, moved to England, worked at a travel company, just try to get that first world influence, try to see what it's like to have nice cappuccinos again. So after, after I'd done my time in England as a working in travel, um, kind of setting up these trips for people, I then decided that I wanted to really, really test my, my body, test my talents and what I was able to produce. And so I moved down to Peru into a place called Manu National Park. It's one of the most remote national parks in the world and it's deep in the Amazon, very, very deep in the Amazon. And there I was part of a small team that was essentially trying to do a bit of an ecotourism viability study, working out how to get more out of this national park how we could get more people going in there and ultimately how we could conserve it. Because down there you're looking at a lot of um, kind of gold mining, logging, drug trafficking, human trafficking. And so it's a hotbed of, of difficulty. And so tourism is, is one of those ways out. After there, that's when I moved across to my current role, which is, up in, which is obviously in Kenya. And that's essentially a shortened version of my last nine, ten years. Okay. Fascinating. It's, it seems like um, we are on the same page in a lot of different things. So, for example, for me, my background isn't, uh, my background's architecture. I'm a, you know, an architect by trade. I graduated a, a couple of years ago. I worked for a, about a year and a half to two years and kind of realized then that it wasn't for me. And, um, you know, the natural world conservation was um, what I was really passionate about. And I looked at kind of how I could contribute as someone that, um, wasn't science-based. And for me, it seemed like there was, um, potentially, um, a problem with respect to communicating that scientific research. There seemed to be a, um, a disconnect between the scientists, the researchers and the general public. So, I kind of was like, okay, this is how I could potentially contribute if I could bridge that somehow. Um, but not only through the communication, but also the distribution. So, which is the social media aspect. Um, so yeah, the communication and also the distribution of a message, because 
you could communicate something quite well, but if no one sees it, then it's, you know, it's, you know, you yeah. want people to see it oh. so they can be converted. Um, and then on the ecotourism, I'm a big believer in that because I'm pretty, I'm into entrepreneurship. I think entrepreneurship is key to, you know, innovation and growth in any industry. And ecotourism is important because it provides economical value and it monetizes a space, which is important. Um, if you're trying to seek improvement in a sustainable kind of way, like you need some way of generating or making it um, economically viable or you know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, we're now in the day and age where wildlife has to pay for itself. Um, I, I wouldn't have wanted that, but essentially if you had to take, for example, the Masai Mara, this incredible space we have, which I'm looking out on, if, if we didn't allow tourism there, there is no way that, that the land would be as uh, what it is now. Unfortunately, unfortunately, tourism is the best way that we can monetize the animals and the animals can give back to the communities. And so if, therefore you don't have the community encroaching on the land. The big issues in a lot of the wild spaces left in the world is obviously the human wildlife conflict. I see it here all the time. The Masai Mara, for those of you who don't know, doesn't have any fences. Unlike a lot of my kind of the Southern Africa um, game reserves, which have certain fences surrounding them, the Masai Mara doesn't have any fences. And so you've got animals, especially, especially things like dispersing young male lions who are moving out of their core zones and are chased out by their, by their fathers and then they're moving into these community areas. They're seeing the cattle, the goats, the sheep, and so they're taking an easy meal. I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. And then, of course, the locals will then retaliate. I can understand that. And so ecotourism is one way that we can use to kind of buffer that, that conflict. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's wrong and right ways to do it, I imagine. So um, I don't think uh, ecotourism, like a lot of people, there's like a stigma around money and conservation in a lot of ways like uh if you make it if you monetize it or turn it into some kind of a business that it could that's a bad thing um but i think there's you know there are rules and, and regulations that i guess could be integrated into say a safari tour to ensure that the well-being of the animal isn't compromised like there yeah. there are rules that we can follow to ensure that you know we um you know we're, we're still generating this income but we're doing it in a way that the, the animals aren't necessarily suffering as a consequence yeah yeah no and it's and it's, it's naive for people if they say that, that that ecotourism doesn't make money the reality is that companies like so the lodge that i'm working at for example langama beautiful lodge the objective is to make money so they can they can please the guests who are coming and by doing that they can do real good work both with the communities in the area and in the park if they weren't making money, how could they possibly try and do good work? Mm. Um, so it's important that ecotourism is sustainable. No one's wanting to work to, to, to work at a loss here. It's important that to make the money, but then to spend the money in, in, in the appropriate manner, appropriate ways. And ethically and morally, you, this, this whole, the whole thing and, and where I think we, would, we should go a lot with this discussion is, is the impact that photography has on conservation. Because, because that, is, that is something which is very, very close to my heart, having with the, the scientific background, working at the disconnect between the, the general public and the science. Photography is one way that is making 
animals, making landscapes, making ecosystems um, more understandable to the general populace of the world. When you see these images, it, of course, there, there are issues. And, and, and I've, I have a massive love-hate relationship with a, with a platform like Instagram, for example, because what, it, what it's done is it's, it's created a culture of just showing beautiful imagery, just again and again and again. I mean, how many beautiful leopard shots are you going to see? And what that does is that kind of, you don't really get the true story. You don't get what's going on behind the picture. You don't get the conflict. You don't get the difficulties. You don't get the rangers who invested their entire lives into saving that, that cat. So it also, what it does is it puts a massive, massive amount of pressure on the animals. I, I think that our Instagram generation is basically now the reason that people are taking photographs. A lot of people are no longer doing it for the love of taking a photograph. They're doing it to try and get you know extra likes and extra extra followers. 100%. And what that means is we, we used to be we used to be okay with showing a picture of a leopard. Then we used then everyone did that. So then it became oh let's get a leopard and her cub. And then everyone did that. And then it was like, okay, cool, let's get a leopard carrying her cub. And suddenly the invasion of the privacy of that wild animal has been destroyed, has been broken down. So as a photographer, as a wildlife photographer, I have a huge responsibility to get a good photograph, but never, never at the detriment of that animal. Mm -hmm. And I just fear that Instagram culture is one where we don't know the full story. So therefore those lines are being, are being blurred quite substantially. That's my biggest fear about what's going on. Yeah, so the point you're talking about on the Instagram, I 100% agree. Um, it seems like when we post content, it's it's like we're always trying to, it's like an ego thing. We're always trying to one-up our friends and our work colleagues and everything. We want to be like, okay, you got 100 likes, but look, I took a photo of a leopard and it got 200 likes. Shame on you, like I'm cooler than you kind of thing. And that's dangerous because if you if you have this one-up mentality, it's like what's better than a photo of a leopard? A photo of a leopard with you patting it kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's it you go down this spiral. Yeah, like where does it end? Where does it end? And so you start seeing pictures of people, you know, selfies with a, 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 a cheetah sitting on the roof of the car and the person. That, that, that didn't exist before before the, the Instagram cell phone culture. That didn't exist. No one wanted that. We've created this idea that we want that because it might get us extra followers, which is super dangerous. Mm -hmm. But it does I, the, the, plus, the plus side of, of, of Instagram and various different things is the awareness. I mean, take, for example, the fires going on in Brazil. It's, it's a story that because of social media, we are now aware of. So there is a massive role for social media to play, such as this conversation. Mm -hmm. But it just needs to be that responsibility is, is an issue. And that's why when, one of the things that you asked me when we were emailing was, which, which photographers do I, do I recommend? I'm always like, well, I actually am getting bored of following just beautiful photographers. I want to follow wildlife photographers who are trying to encapsulate a story and trying to reward the people who are who are putting their time and effort into the conservation. So I'm I'm more into conservation photography rather than just beautiful imagery. Of course, I can appreciate a beautiful lion or a beautiful rhino or whatever. But those days are numbered. Those days of just beautiful imagery is numbered. I believe that we need to start showing the people who are putting their lives at risk to save these animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and almost if you're fo if you're a wildlife photographer and your focus is on kind of conservation. 
um, like it's almost like more important, like in some, like let's say you, you're on a safari and a cheetah popped up on your safari truck and you took a photo. In terms of conversation, it's more important not to post that photo on social media. Kind of like it's, yeah. I'm fascinated with this idea of kind of um, the impact that we can have through sharing or even not sharing. Like sometimes it's more important yeah. not to share an image um, because um, people can, whether your intention is well and good, people can interpret, interpret that in, in a million different ways and it just goes literally viral and out of control. Um, like there's a couple of animal what? influences out there on Instagram that um, work at centuries and they, they shower with yeah. chimpanzees and like pat them in like tigers and pools and stuff. And like, you know, these, some of these videos of these tigers in a pool patting them, they get like over a million views and create generating this demand for um, tigers as pets because someone posts a, a video on social media and it gets 2 million likes and you, you go down their comments and they're like, where do I get a pet? Um, blah, blah, blah. And when I'm researching for my own content, uh, I use this website called answerthepublic.com and you, you type in a keyword and then it generates like a list of um, popular Google search results. And often the most, like if I search gorilla or cheetah or tiger, um, some of the most popular ones, searches, Google searches are how do I buy this pet or, you know, where do I? And it's like, it's not just, it's like, 10 times, 20 times more searches than lion conservation or tiger conservation. It's like disproportionately um, in favor of I want a pet, I want a pet tiger versus I want to save the tiger or like I want more tigers in the wild. It's Yeah, that's that's the, the, the downside of Instagram. But if it can have that much power yeah. for perhaps a negative influence, I think that it can also be have a positive influence. And that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out is how we can um, leverage it for the good. Yeah. And I think it's important to, for people to remember that, that photographs on Instagram and Facebook, they get taken out of context and people don't, they watch, they look at the picture rather than reading the caption and the caption may explain, okay, that cheetah was sitting on my car and I don't believe in this behavior and this is what we should not be doing. Whereas that photograph will then get shared around and it will be as So I think social, the danger of social media is that it's very visual, visual heavy rather than um, story. You know, the, the story that's got entirely. Um, there's another thing which, which, which I feel very strongly about, and it's one of the reasons that I've been working with this Remembering Wildlife um, campaign. It's a project. It's a, it's a, hopefully, it's soon to be a whole. Way of thinking, and that is that wildlife photographers have very little way to give. So um, photographers will come into an area, and they take these photographs. And when they leave, they've got these beautiful images, but there. But that's where it kind of ends. There's no way for them to to give back to the conservation of the area in which they've just enjoyed. So there are a few things that we two two main things that I've really got very involved in this year and and a bit of last year. One is the remembering wildlife thing, which is where essentially photographers from around the world are given the opportunity to donate their best image. And then that book will then obviously, so this year in the home, the lion book. 
So all you know, top 60 wildlife photographers in the world, everyone's got one picture in there. And then when that book gets sold, every single cent from that book goes towards lion conservation projects. Mm-hmm. And that is, for me, that's a wonderful way. It's a very fulfilling way of saying, okay, cool, I've taken these photographs of these lions. I now have a way to give back indirectly, but I have a way to give back to lions. That's a very important thing for me personally, and, and I hope that photographers around the world are starting to feel that too. Um, the, second, the second thing that, that is a way of giving back is, is this competition that we created called the Greatest Maasai Mara Photographer of the Year. So about a year and a half ago, we identified that there was this growing need for photographers to give back and a responsibility for photographers to give back rather than just take, take, take. It's time to give mm-hmm. a little bit. And so we created the greatest Maasai Mara photographer of the year. Now, essentially, there's a number of different layers to this. One is the giving back. One is the providing incredible content to showcase the Mara all all year round. So people can see incredible imagery of a wildlife destination that is flourishing, that is doing incredibly well. And the other was, was to raise awareness and some funds for some conservation work. So the way it would work is you would... You would enter a photograph taken in the Maasai Mara ecosystem. You would enter your photograph with a $20 US dollar um, price tag. You could decide where you want that $20 to go. So we will give you six options, six really good organizations in the Maasai Mara that are essentially wanting your money. Your $20 would go, say, for example, you wanted to support elephants. There's the Mara Elephant Project. Or children, there's the Mara Trust. There's six of them. You could decide, okay, my $20 goes to Mara Elephant Project. It's going to the elephants, so it's essentially a donation, a $20 donation. What that then does is you then become part of a pool of photographers you've now entered. And at the end of every month, we, we choose one winner. And at the end of the year, we're choosing the ultimate winner, the greatest Maasai Mara photographer of the year. We then thought, so that's great. We're raising exposure for these organizations. We're raising money for these organizations. We're showing great content. Let's get some cool judges on board. So we got kind of a little, uh, we got five judges from around the world to, to be the panel. We thought let's stick a really nice price tag on the end of this for, for the photographer. So we stuck $10,000 up. But then we thought, hang on, we're missing out on a, on a trick here. And that is the fact that the photographers are often the ones that already have the money. They've already, they've already invested in their long lenses and they've got all the stuff. The guy who never gets rewarded is the, is the guide. The guy who's driving the car, the guy who knows the animal behavior, the guy who says to the photographer, in five minutes time, maybe that cheetah is going to chase that gazelle and maybe that's when you get your shot. Mm-hmm. No one ever thinks about the guides. They just think about the big name photographers. So we thought, you know what, let's reward the guides. And that is why we are going to send the top three photographers guides to England to go and watch a football match. Because we decided that that's something that is very very different, very unusual, uh, get them to London, get them into a football stadium, and let them spread the story about the, the benefits that wildlife photography can have on, on having fun and on conservation at the same time. I love how you um, have considered the guides as well. That's very, um, I love that. Good work. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. It's, it's, I, I don't know of any other competition that does that at all. Mm. And it's, it's our way of saying thank you because otherwise we just can't say thank you to the guys who are actually sitting in the sun every day, the guys who are looking out for the poachers, the guys who, the guys who are doing the work. While, while we enjoy the, you know, the, the cream at the top there, there's guys who are doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
um, that we need to reward. Um, and I'm, I'm all for using Instagram, social media, Facebook, whatever it may be, to spread the stories of conservation rather than just, rather than just the animals. Mm-hmm. So for the wildlife photographers out there that are kind of interested in this competition, how do they enter? So it's, we've, we've built a, a greatestmassamara.com um, and you enter the series of little steps from uploading your photo to writing your details, choosing your guide's name, saying where you stayed, um, and then selecting where you want your money to go. And the nice thing is even if you don't, even if you didn't want your money to go to the Marathon Project, you would still read up a little bit, hopefully, about them, and you would learn a little bit more than you would know yesterday about them. Mm-hmm. And so we chose those, we chose those six organizations quite, quite carefully to try and be representative of all the work that's going on here and to reward some of them who are hardly known at all. Some of them are just a group of people who are just doing good stuff, good work, and, mm-hmm. and they deserve to have their stories told. Definitely. Okay, so as someone who uh, is one of the judges in this competition, what features make a winning wildlife photograph? Yeah, uh, probably the most difficult conversation, a <laughs> uh, uh, difficult question. Um, there, is no, there, is, there is no such thing as a, an Excel document you can work through and tick and give five points, four points, three points for each different category. I, I don't believe that you can judge a photograph like that. For me, the most important thing is, is there a reason for me to look at that photograph for longer than a second? If I'm just going through photographs, does that one photograph make me pause and go, what is happening here? And do I question what is happening here? Do I, do I tell this? Do I, can I read a story? Can I get an emotion? Is there something more than just face value going on? Mm-hmm. For me, it doesn't matter about the technicalities. I mean, I think some of the most incredible photographs we've ever seen are not, not necessarily in focus. They're not even technically fantastic photographs. It's, is there a story? Of, of course it helps if it's technically right and the light is right and your settings are right. But is there, some, is there depth? When I, when I judge a photograph, I'm looking for depth. Now, whether, whether that is the right or wrong answer, I don't, I don't know. I can judge personally, which is why we chose five judges from a diverse kind of range to try and allow each person to kind of express themselves individually but collectively come up with a great image. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if if the focus isn't necessarily on the technicalities and you know whether the eyes and focus or blah 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 blah, um, have you had any good uh, photos from I guess photographers, maybe amateur photographers like myself who doesn't have a fancy camera or a lens? Do you find some of those um, photographers doing quite well in this competition? Yeah, so we've had the whole range from iPhone photos through to you know, twenty thousand dollar cameras. Um, of course, the guys who are more serious tend to get better angles, better better settings, and so therefore the photographs end up looking better. And so it is weighted towards them. But we have had a number of guides, for example, who've just been in the right place at the right time. Time. I mean, if you go back last year, we had an extraordinary image of a of a pride of lions trying to take down a female giraffe they're literally climbing on the back of the giraffe trying to get to her baby underneath she was protecting the baby photographically it wasn't technically the best photo but the emotions that that plays on you as a viewer way surpasses the technicalities of the picture the thing i always tell people when i run these photographic workshops that i do there's no substitute for time for time out in in the field Um, whether it be in the masai mara or even in your garden photographing sparrows 
I mean, if you're not putting the time into your photography, you're never going to witness that behavior that is that makes a photograph special. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't go on a three night holiday to to the Masai Mara and expect the world in terms of photography. You have to invest time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of storytelling, so um, one thing I like about storytelling is the fact that. You can tell a story on so many different mediums. Like it doesn't have to be photography. It can be filmmaking. It can be writing. It can be anything. And this is actually personally something that I've learned is um, this idea that you can tell a story beyond writing a book or producing a movie. Um, You can do it in the form of a photo or even creating a piece of content on Instagram or like even through the caption on Instagram, for example. Um, So... Comparing a photo and a video, what kind of a story can you tell um, through a photo that you can't perhaps tell through a film, in your opinion? Mm, it's a good question. You know, I, there's a general trend for amongst humans, I think, that we're so inundated with, with media that our attention spans are ridiculously short. <laughs> I mean, yes. even now, if you look at I mean. We've we've been looking at what people are thinking is the, the average length of a video that they're watching on social media, and it might be something like 15 seconds. So you've got such a short period of time to tell that story, and that's why I say that if you if if a photograph forces you to look into it to get that depth, then it's a great photo for me. And I think the world is is so short-sighted in terms of our attention spans that to be able to get that instant story is, is a real a real art a real art form. Um, and that's what the great photographers can do is they can tell the story in that second. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that works well. So given our diminishing attention spans, if you can captivate a, a person in one second through a photo, that's something you can't necessarily do on a, a video because a video requires some kind of buildup. So um, it can work against your video if you can't, captivate them in that one or two seconds um yeah. that's tough it's, in terms of content in terms of if, if there's people watching who, who get into social media content it's a really tough world out there to get that fine balance between telling a story but keeping people and we're just getting inundated with so much media that it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter that people are, I feel storytelling may get worse and worse because people are just kind of, we can't tell the story. So just, and it's, it's, a, it's a little dilemma that we've, we've kind of created amongst ourselves, I, I think. And it's quite something for us to try and overcome that. Yeah. Um, me personally, I, I think it would be cool, like in the arena of social media and Instagram, um, these wildlife photographers, if they use, if they were able to kind of document um, their process or that, that safari that led up to that amazing photo. Like it would be kind of cool to get an insight into what happened before and after that photo. So with Instagram yeah. stories and, you know, there's um, many different yeah. kind of I, and I think That would be interesting from my perspective. You, if you see all the latest kind of, you know, blue chip, green, uh, blue planet, BBC kind of high, high end wildlife documentaries, probably the most the most watched or the most anticipated of it is actually the very last minute or two where they give the behind the scenes. Yep. And I, I also think that that's a very, very important part because having now been a guide for the last 11 years, 
people are so used to seeing incredible imagery that they come here and they say, oh, well, we've got three days. We want to see the Great Migration crossing the river. We want to see crocodiles killing the zebra. We want to see lions mating. We want to see cheetah chasing. They, they're expecting it to just happen. They don't realize that that it takes months, if not years, to accumulate that footage. And so, again, I think we have a responsibility to tell the, the honest story. The honest story is this photograph didn't happen in one second. This photograph took a month of preparation. And, and, and yeah, I think that, that we, we need as content creators, social media, conservation content creators, we now have a responsibility to start telling more of the truth behind the story rather than just the part that we know is going to get the likes. 100%. I believe in that with everything. I reckon that's really important because um, you're, you're, you're an insp- you're, you would inspire through that um, more people, more conservationists, more people. Like if you can share that story a bit more in a bit more depth, uh, more people will jump on board that. Um, I think you would attract more people yeah. into the space through doing that. Okay, so wildlife photography, um, one thing I'm also interested in as well is are there any code of ethics kind of across the board in terms of um, you know, taking a photo of wildlife? There, there should be, but there isn't. There's, there's morals. And, and what, what I may think is overstepping a boundary, another person may look and go, that boundary was overstepped a long time ago. I'm happy to leap over that boundary. So there are internal morals for each person. There are rules in the Mare, you're not supposed to have more than five cars at a, at a sighting. It's very easy to bend those rules. Um, it's very easy. I mean, I've watched some of your stuff with, with whales or with dolphins. It's very easy to go to. Mm. It's, very, it's very easy to break those rules. And, and a lot of that has been exacerbated by the fact that the guide is hoping to get a great tip. And so, for example, if you look at India, the, the, the common problem there is about people harassing the tigers. And that been set in by the fact that when people see tigers, they're so excited that they'll often just give the guide a higher tip than what they would have had they not seen a tiger. And so in the guide's mentality, it's tiger, 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 to the extent where he doesn't care that he's harassing that tiger. So are there, are there rules and, and, eth- and set rules? There should be. Some places they are. But really it boils down to the, to the photographer and the guide as a team especially when you're working in a place like the Serengeti, the Nassau Mara, where it's definitely a two-man team. If you can see an animal snarling or hissing or growling, or that's when you've gone too far. And there is often the right time and the right place to put the camera away and say, that photograph is not worth it. Yeah, I, th- I think there needs to be more um, dialogue around that, like with um, ecotourism and tourism in, in general, just kind of, exploding like it was increasing um tourists need to kind of have an understanding of what should or what should they do or what shouldn't they do or kind of because if they're traveling to a country for the first time they have no idea what is right or wrong so um, i think there needs to be a dialogue around kind of the morals around wildlife photography and and what we should do and um if a animal is snaring or doing something in particular, that means that maybe we should back off a bit. Um, and if we are aware of that as a, a as a tourist, if we see that, we can go to the guide ourselves and be like, ah, I read somewhere that this is probably not a good thing. Can we back off? I'm waiting for the time when people start to comment on photographs on Instagram saying, 
lovely photograph, but may I ask how you got a newborn tiger cub or a, or a newborn cheetah cub? How, how were you so close? And then the photographer was actually saying. Um, so if you see a photo or a video that you think is perhaps a bit dodgy, instead of just thinking it, comment and ask a question. Because when you ask that question, yeah. someone will read that question in the comments and you know that will plant a seed in their mind as well. So if you see something a bit su like suspect, um, voice it, comment. And, and, and give, the, give the photographer the opportunity to, to reply. If, mm. he, if he genuinely, maybe he got incredibly lucky, maybe the tiger just walked past him and the tiger was carrying the cub and it was all just the stars aligned, then he writes that and then, that, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But I, I, I do think more dialogue is now, is now required to explain some of the stories because if we don't, the pressures that will build up in, in years to come are going to be quite extraordinary, I think, on these animals. Mm -hmm. And you raise a good point. Um, approaching that dialogue in a, with a constructive and open mind, so not going out there to attack the individual, but to ask the question yeah. and be willing to kind of listen to what they say um, because attacking yeah. someone doesn't usually lead to the desired outcomes. You know, people just get defensive and that's just psychology. Um, okay, so that's that. Um, do you have a favorite place to photograph? Um, no, too many. Too, too many. This, this, <laughs> One of those impossible um, questions. Yeah, impossible, but I, but I will continue to try and get to, to the places less traveled. So often people on my own personal website or, or my own writings or whatever, people will say, okay, but we feel helpless. As a tourist, how do we help? How do, what do we do? And I say to them, when you're next booking your trip to go to Kenya or Zimbabwe or South Africa or Brazil or India, that's wonderful. Go. Spend as much time and as much money as you can. But during your travels, try and include one stay, whether it be a night or two nights or three nights. One portion of your trip should be to an area that is not mainstream, somewhere that is possibly struggling or somewhere that is possibly on the verge of, of breaking out in terms of, in terms of what it could potentially be. The places on the borders of the national parks are often the most in need of your money. So you've got these guys who are trying to build these conservancies. They're genuine people who are trying to get more land under conservation. But people aren't going to them because their land isn't the most optimal now. Of course it isn't. It'll be the most optimal in a few years' time if we support them. So rather than just going mainstream, 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 do all of those, but then go to include one stop that maybe is a little bit off the beaten track and those guys really need your money. Um, that would be the way that I think tourists can contribute towards conservation. Mm -hmm. So go support, um, not necessarily the mainstream projects or locations, but kind of go to the paths less traveled, um, because yeah. they receive can, less money and they need the money. They yeah, need the support. So, 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 so if you, for example, if you took the, the Kenya, for example, obviously come to the Masamara, come stay where I work at Ngama, do it. Fantastic. But then on that trip, Go and see another part of Kenya, which people don't know about because they're doing cool things too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I believe that. Um, so you mentioned um, you're working on the remembering wildlife. Are there any, any other projects that you're currently working on at the moment or want to give a little shout out to? Um, I think, I think the foundation that I, so I, I work at a lodge called Angama and we have a foundation. Basically, every person who comes to this camp 
contributes $10 per person per night. Doesn't sound like much, but it very quickly adds up. And we, we create like a, a kitty, like this, this, this pool of money. We, we, it gets to you know, a couple of thousand dollars relatively quickly, and then we throw it out to the community, and we say, listen, what do you guys really need? How can we support? And we do things from coloring lime, building dams, to building teachers' accommodation. And the foundation really is a, is a fantastic way of making big difference, but with small amounts of money just pulled together. And so I, I do think that the, the Angola Foundation is doing fantastic work and is making a significant change to the Maasai Mara ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the Remembering Wildlife, that is for me kind of one of the core projects of the year because it not only is it raising money for, for lions currently, the last books are raising money for elephants and then rhinos and great apes and so on and so forth, but it's more the, the idea that we are changing the concept that it is now a responsibility for photographers to give back. And that is why I like that so much. It's not necessarily the exact projects, but it's actually just slowly starting to seed the idea that photography cannot just be a, a take, take, take. It must be a give mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah, those are, the, those are the two main areas that I'm roaming in at the moment. Um, I do a lot of my photography workshops, a lot of kind of the private guiding here. Um, we've got a fascinating studio that we built. We've got, we do camera rentals, we do prints. We do everything that is storytelling-wise, animal, human, kind of community-related as well. Okay. We're, we're nearing the end. I've got a couple more questions. Um, for anyone that's looking to get into this wildlife photography space, do you have any advice for them? Um, like I said, the first thing is time. You've got to, you've got to invest the time, and that is one of the biggest costs of, about photography is it's not instant, so you spend a lot of time and you might get very little out of it. Um, then there's, I would just be very hesitant about, let's put it this way. If you go into Instagram and you see a photographer and he's got 100,000 followers, or you see a photographer and he's got 100 followers, your mind is now telling you that the 100,000 follower guy is a better photographer. Mm-hmm. And I would warn you against that because just because the person can sell themselves better or can, or has got a better PR company or team or looks better on camera, doesn't mean they're a better photographer. doesn't mean that they stand for anything better than someone else who doesn't have that. So my biggest advice with how photographers should get into this and how they should host, handle social media is to actually look at the imagery, actually look at the stories being told and then decide what makes someone worth following rather than just, oh, the crowd is following them. As for, as for people wanting to get into photography and wildlife photography, I would say travel as much as you can. Doesn't really matter what camera you can get, but get as best you can, whatever you can afford. Obviously, cameras do make a difference. I think people naively say, oh, the best camera is the camera you have in your hand right now. Yes, to some degree, but the reality is technology has improved to the extent now where you can photograph much better with higher end cameras. So do what you can, but don't let that limit you, but do what you can that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and also then lastly, just read and watch, read and watch different things, see what's going on, stay current, stay relevant, see what the trends are. And then also sometimes fight those trends, try and dig deeper. Like I, I've been now, I mean, we won't get into it now, but the, <clears throat> the fires in Brazil, Unlike, I think, a lot of people who just kind of read it on face value, I actually wanted to know more about it. So I got on 
got on the phone and I phoned three of my friends who I used to work with in the Pantanal. And I was like, listen, what is the real issue? What is really going on there? I, I'm not so sure social media is telling the accurate truth. So my, my suggestion and my recommendation is always look for the deeper, the deeper thing that's going on. So don't always judge social media on face value and photographs of face value. Question it. Question the ethics. Question what happened behind and question why, why the photograph is being taken. And you raise a good point on when you saw those Amazon fires on Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah, just this, there is, it's so easy to spread, not saying that Amazon reinforces is fake news, but in general, it's, it's easy to spread fake, fake news online. So when you see something, it's, we, we need to kind of take a bit of responsibility to, um, before we act on it completely, do a bit of background research ourselves and, um, get a more thorough understanding about the topic before just reacting completely to a meme on Instagram, because it could be true, but it could be false. And, um, it's near impossible to kind of distinguish the two these days. So you need to, um, yeah, do, do a bit of background research yourselves from a consumer yeah. of social media. I think that's important as well. Okay. And for people that want to reach out to you on social media, how can they do that? Yeah, so so um, Instagram is probably the best, um, and that's Adam underscore Bannister underscore Wildlife, but also Facebook, our website, adambannisterwildlife.com. Um, yeah, I'm more than happy to engage with people to debate. I, I We all make mistakes. We all push the limits too far. We all do it. Um, and I think it's it just stands as to just question yourself, question others, and Let's try and let's try and wait, make a way that photography continues, but it starts to have it more of a story. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, and last question, um, we kind of talked about a few when we're looking at wildlife photographers and following them on social media. You know, not necessarily following the one that has the most followers. You know, kind of broaden our horizons and and try and see what else is out there. So, do you have any suggestions for? any wildlife photographers out there that uh, we yeah. should follow? I mean, there's, there's, there's the very established guys. There's the guys who've been in this for a number of years and, and who, so guys like Steve Winter, uh, Tim Lehman, Brent Sturton, Franz Lunting. Those are probably four that I would, and Marcus Westberg. These are guys who are giving a lot of their, their passion, a lot of their talent to conservation. And then there's just some of the newer guys. And by newer, I mean, they're just younger. They haven't been as, as in the industry for so long. And there's, there's um, a guy called Carl uh, de Brogniger, James Suter. I can send you these these links. Yes. These are guys who are who are really putting a lot of time into it. And so, yeah, give them a follow. See what they do. There's Margot Raggett, the lady who runs Remembering Wildlife. She's always doing things that are interesting. Um, yeah, interesting people. But I, I will, I'll send you those links so you can put them up there. Um, of people that I think are, are doing cool stuff mm. in the right way. Mm, definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Um, was there anything yeah. else you wanted to touch on before we go? No, I think I think that's I think that's about it. But check the check the um, remembering lines. The, the book's coming out in October in the Royal Geographical Society in London, so it's going to be a nice event. The um, greatest mass Mara photographer of the year. The winner will be announced 28th of November in Nairobi. That'll also be a cool event. Um, and yeah, just just keep. Keep the cool imagery and the dialogue going.
Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.